Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axel Bank, and today we're going to speak with Alelia Bundles, the author of On Her Own Ground The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. The book is now the basis for a series on Netflix called Self Made, starring Octavia Spencer. Ms. Bundles is also the chair of the National Archives Foundation and is a former TV news producer. Thanks so much for being here, Alelia. Oh, my pleasure. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. So who doesn't love their own grandmother? I certainly do. Who doesn't think that their own grandmother deserves to have a book written about her? I know that I do, but... Alelia Bundle's great-great-grandmother is Madam C.J. Walker. In 2001, Alelia cemented her grandmother's amazing legacy by writing On Her Own Ground. Madam C.J. Walker is the first American woman to be a self-made millionaire. She was born in 1867 in Louisiana and died at 51 in 1919. So first of all, what does it say about how history is recorded that no one had written a book about her until you did? Well, I think that history, the story that we learned in school was essentially about wars and, you know, strong men <laughs> and women and people of color were basically left out of, out of the history books. At least when I was growing up, things have gotten much better. But her story was definitely not told in my uh, history class in the public school, wonderful public school that I went to in Indianapolis, Indiana. But Second. I think things really began to change. Uh, in the 60s, women, the women's movement, uh, African-Americans, black history, um, black studies, civil rights movement. And there were uh, departments at colleges for women's studies, for African-American history. And scholars really began to delve more deeply into the details of what is really an American story. And now we have a fuller picture of our American history. What does it say about how American society is built that we were able to determine who the first female millionaire is? Because if you were to look for the group of men, you'd have thousands of contenders probably because, you know, their finances are, are generally more recorded and there were many more opportunities, of course, afforded to them. So I guess I'm answering my own question, but what did it say to you about how society is built that we could figure out who the first female millionaire was? Well, you know, as a, as a journalist and as a person who loves history, I'm always a little, I'm sort of tiptoe around that first self-made woman millionaire. I mean, I think that's what the Guinness Book of World Records says. And so who am I to argue with that? <laughs> uh, but I think it's really hard to have recorded that. But what you, you know, what we do know for sure is that when Madam Walker died um, in 1919, her estate and the value of her business uh, were worth a million dollars. And we know that there were other women who were married to men who were millionaires and billionaires and who were the children and who inherited their money. But she seems to be the person who we can definitely record the value of her estate at the time of her death. All right. So let's get into Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, you dedicate this book to your mother, who you said uh, knew that this was your story to tell. So what did you hear growing up about your great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker? The silverware that we used every day had Madam C.J. Walker's monogram on it, and the china that we used on special occasions had belonged to Madam Walker. So I began to have some sense of there was somebody who had had some money. 
My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company when I was born in the 50s, and she went to work there every day. So the company had long since been a major company, but it was still, it still existed, and I knew that my mother was a businesswoman. And really my first um, sort of foray into the Walker women, Madam Walker and her daughter, Lilia Walker, was in the bedroom of my grandmother, her apartment. She had died in 1945. My grandfather was still living in the apartment. And as a toddler, I often went into that bedroom as my mother and my grandfather talked in the living room and opened up the dresser drawer. And inside that dresser drawer was a a beautiful ostrich feather fan and these miniature uh, mummy charms that I later learned Alelia Walker had gotten on a trip to Cairo and mother of pearl opera glasses. So I was starting to discover who these women were. I didn't really fully understand until much later the magnitude of their lives. Was there a moment that you said, I've got to do a book? Or was this a lifelong sort of evolution in your thinking that you sort of realized uh, over time that this was a story that needed to be told? Uh, To tell you the truth, I was as far away as possible from this. My parents both worked in the hair care industry. My mother is at the Walker Company. My dad was president, actually, of another black hair care company that was the more successful of the two during the 60s when I was a a young adult. Uh, But I was interested in writing. I was interested in journalism, and my parents encouraged me to follow my own dreams. There was no pressure to go into what essentially was the family business. And so I was not trying in any way to focus on Madam Walker. But when I was a student at Columbia in the journalism school and graduate school, my advisor, Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty, recognized my unusually spelled name, Alelia, A apostrophe, capital L, E L I A. I think any other professor would have said, oh, that's interesting or that's weird. But Phil said, uh, do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? And I think she knew the answer, but I wasn't talking about it. And I said, well, yeah, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write your master's paper about. So that's really the fall of 1975. That really started me on the journey. Take us back. Otherwise, I don't know that I, you know, it would have been many, many years later if I had made that decision. There's nothing like a professor's incisive question, isn't there? They're they're so smart and they see things that we've already seen, but they make sure we see them real close and clear. Um, Take us back to 1867. Uh, You say Sarah Breedlove, that was uh, Madam C.J. Walker's name back then. Uh, Sarah Breedlove, you say, was just another black baby destined for drudgery and ignorance. But to her parents, who were once slaves, she symbolized hope. Why hope? first child born free in her family. Her parents and older siblings had been enslaved on the plantation in Delta, Louisiana, owned by R.W. Burney. They were really, as we know, Reconstruction and the aftermath of the Civil War, Black people were working as sharecroppers. Their lives had not changed measurably, really, from the time of slavery, except they weren't legally enslaved. But there still was a great deal of hope in that generation that they might own property, that their children might get educated. Her family minister was, had been elected to the state uh, Senate in Louisiana. So there was this sense of possibility for that generation. And she was the child who symbolized that for her family. Talk about where she was born and why that place is important and extraordinary. I couldn't believe reading it. So tell us about it. 
Well, you know, I really, I feel like the, you know, the, the planets aligned as hard as her life was in the beginning, it, cre it provided so many opportunities for storytelling for me. The plantation where she was born, the Bernie plantation, had been um, one of the most prosperous um, areas in America because it was so great for growing cotton. It was 90% black because you needed a lot of black bodies to pick that cotton, to plant that, uh, that crop. And that meant that after the, when the Civil War ended, the population was still there. That gave a great deal of political power to uh, African-Americans who were living there. But it also had served during the Civil War as the staging area for Grant and Sherman during the Siege of Vicksburg. Siege of Vicksburg is like Gettysburg. They happened at this, around the same time. And it was one of those decisive battles, which means in the National Archives now, there are thousands of pages of records about what was going on in that plantation during the war and right after. Uh, her childhood very much tracks with Reconstruction and the violence that it brought. And I, I argue throughout many of my podcasts and my conversations with people that uh, Reconstruction is just the critical moment and critical point in the you know second half of American history if the Civil War is the sort of dividing line. So uh, what do we know about how her family dealt with the white violence of those years and the terrorism that they faced? Yeah, definitely it was ground zero. Um, Louisiana was in the center of the backlash to black political power. So there were riots in uh, New Orleans. There was racial violence in the parish where she was born. Uh, her family minister actually was chased out of Madison Parish by the Ku Klux Klan because he was advocating um, civil rights and advocating political power for the people in his community. And her brothers followed along um, not too long afterwards when, the, when her family minister was chased out and they ended up moving to St. Louis. By this time, both of her parents had died. Um, really, we think of just of natural causes. There are no death certificates for people during that period of time. But it was first an area that had political power when uh, black men could vote and they were elected to office and then the racial backlash and violence against their their right to vote really took away, disenfranchised them and took away that right to vote. And so you said that she moved to St. Louis where she works a, as a domestic servant. Ultimately, she does, uh, she, as you said, uh, she gets married at 14 and then is widowed. Um, at 22 was when she moved to St. Louis. And so what did St. Louis offer her both in practical matters and in inspiration. Yeah, St. Louis was the big city and the Mississippi River was the, uh, the avenue of opportunity. So her plantation was on the Mississippi River like many other people. It was really one of the first uh, major migrations of African-Americans. Her brothers with the family minister had moved to St. Louis in 1879, 1880 during um, a migration movement called the Exodusters. And this happened with sort of a few years, just, you know, just long enough after the Civil War where it was clear that sharecropping was always going to cheat you out of everything. So people just kind of lined up on the banks of the Mississippi River, really in the same way that we see people trying to leave Central America now. There was violence, there was, you know, no economic opportunity, and her brothers were part of that Exodusters um, 
exit from, from uh, the area in Louisiana and ended up in St. Louis. Some people went on to Kansas and, and Nebraska and Oklahoma where we know that there were a lot of black settlements, but her brother stayed in St. Louis. And that was key for her because after her husband died, she knew she wasn't going to move back in with her sister and, and cruel brother-in-law, as she said. But her brothers had been there for about a decade and they had established themselves as barbers at a time when black men dominated the barbering trade. And their barbershop was very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And it really, the history of the AME Church is that it embraced new migrants and educated black people when it was illegal for us to read and write before the end of slavery. And she benefited from her brother's status in the community and from the women in the church who reached out to her and began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And you write that she simply gets sick of this backbreaking work of washing people's clothes. And I can just imagine someone staring down at these clothes day in and day out and, and you're working hard and, and you know, I, uh, you know, you're, uh, it's not the way it is now where there's a washing machine and you pull stuff out and you fold it and that's it. It's real backbreaking work. So what and when does her personality start to show that she is destined for more, for greatness? You know, I can see that there, especially these women in the church, Jessie Batts Robinson was a school teacher who I see now very much as a mentor of hers, who began to expose her to other things. She had a good enough voice that she could sing in the choir. She was a member of the missionary society. So she wasn't in a leadership role, but she observed these more middle-class women and began to model herself. There was an organization called the National Association of Colored Women and, and with women who had studied in Paris, who'd gone to Oberlin, who were in the leadership roles, who were really suffragists in, in many ways. And they had their national convention in 1904 during the World's Fair at her church. So she was seeing these role models around her. Her second marriage to a man named John Davis was ending. She knew that she had to change her life inspired as it is, as many parents often are, because they want their child's life to be better. And she began to do the things, to take the steps to make sure that she was going to educate herself and that she was going to create more opportunity for herself. What happens to her hair? And how does that set her towards looking for a solution? Um, and she doesn't just look for a solution, she dreams one, at least she says she dreams one. So what does this uh, tall tale, if I may say that, reveal about the power of marketing? So Evan, I just have to say, I love you for reading so carefully. Oh. <laughs> this means a lot to me. Well, I, I'm just gonna, I, I was reading it and I was like, hold on, she dreamt this? That is, wait, what? And then I, it was almost like I was thinking about my dad telling me stories about Paul McCartney waking up with songs in his head that would go down on paper. But I was like, boy, this is an, and then I was like, oh, okay, this is what she was using to, to market it. And mar marketing is marketing, right? You marketing gotta, you gotta is marketing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Look, I, I, as you say, there, she said she had a dream and I <laughs> would not question that. Um, because I believe even, the dream. Yeah. Even Einstein said that part of the theory of relativity came to him in a dream. But I think that that generation of uh, women, especially in cosmetics, her uh, contemporaries like Helena Rubinstein, 
uh, and Elizabeth Arden, they all had these secret formulas that uh, only they knew when in fact these formulas were easily analyzed. And in her case, this formula for her wonderful hair grower was really centuries old. You can see it in ancient times, a little concoction of uh, a heavy grease base like Vaseline with sulfur as a curative that healed the scalp infections that people had because people wash their hair very seldom. Therefore, they had bad dandruff and bad scalp infections. But, but, but tell us what had happened to her hair. Yeah, yeah tell us what happened. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Sarah Breedlove, washerwoman struggling, is losing her hair. And she um, says, I was so ashamed of, of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and told me what to mix up for my formula. Some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them, I applied them to my scalp and my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. So that is the story as she told it. There are some other things going on. <laughs> there, there, were a, there were a couple of products already on the market, Cuta Cure, somewhat similar. If you wash your hair more often and you apply an ointment with a curative like a sulfur in it, your scalp will be healthy, your hair will grow back. She also had a competitor, Annie Malone, for whom she sold products that were very similar for about a year and a half. She moved to Denver uh, to get away from the second husband. And while in Denver, she became a cook for a man named Schultz, who owned the largest pharmacy west of the Mississippi River. And he saw she was selling these products. I think she and Annie Malone, her competitor, had a falling out. And Schultz said, you know, this is a really basic formula. I can analyze it for you. I can help you. You want to add some more things? You want to tweak this? You want to tweak that? So she pulled all those things together. Her dream, products already on the market, selling products for a while for Annie Malone. Her brothers were barbers and the help of a pharmacist. But it was her genius for marketing that took her to the next level. Um, uh, this is a quick aside, and I may have less authority to ask a question about this than anybody in the world. But what does her focus on hair reveal about Black women and how their identity is shaped? And again, I'm not speaking from a position of strength and for many reasons on this question, but, but how would you answer that? You know what? It, it is an absolutely perfect question because it is so integral to identity. Um, you know, in America, where the standard of beauty is European, there has always been a great deal of pressure and a great deal of anxiety uh, among African Americans, uh, not just about skin color, but about hair texture. And this was something that was uh, black women were made to feel inferior. And you sometimes look at these um, 18th century, 19th century uh, pseudoscience books, and it would say, you know, people of African descent, their hair is like wool, you know, therefore they are more like animals. So it was, it was used against us as a way to, to uh, say, cite inferiority. So she was very conscious of that. And it was at a time when she was developing this product, 90% of African-Americans lived in the South, mostly in the rural South, didn't really have, didn't have indoor plumbing, didn't have hair care products. And as people were becoming more urban, they wanted to affect a more modern, more urban, more sophisticated look. And so 
this coincided with the development of her company and the growth of her company. So she was criticized by some people for saying you're trying to straighten your hair, trying to make yourself look more European. But in fact, it was she was focused on growing hair and women who wanted to have some versatility and styling. And we see that now. <laughs> you walk down the street and you see everything from uh, straight hair, short hair, dreadlocks, uh, natural hair, processed hair, falls, wigs, <laughs> hair extensions. It is the full gamut now. But, but women ultimately want versatility. So how does she start uh, this business? We, I mean, we get the idea of what she's got, but, but uh, how does the business start to grow? What does she have to navigate as a woman in this field, as an African-American woman in the business world? How do things get rolling here business-wise? Well, she, when she moves to Denver, she is still selling Annie Malone's products. But within about five months, she starts on her own. And her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker from St. Louis, who was a newspaper man and knew something about advertising, moves to Denver. They get married and she begins to brand herself as Madam C.J. Walker. To a bit of an affectation. It's a little French and France is cosmetics and fashion. So now she is doing hair in her home. Women bring a towel and she washes their hair. She does, she demonstrates the products. Then she and her husband start to travel through these small towns in Colorado. Cause you know, where even though there were very few black people in Colorado, black people were everywhere. And so she knew she had a customer base, but it was a really tiny customer base. So then they started traveling throughout the Southern and Eastern United States, settling briefly in Pittsburgh and then ultimately in, in Indianapolis. But her recruitment model for me is, is interesting. She had watched these middle-class women of the National Association of Colored Women and the Missionary Society in the fraternal organizations. And she saw how to organize women. And she realized, I think, pretty quickly that her hair care products, people needed that but they needed motivation, they needed education, they needed economic independence. So she, as she recruited people, she'd go to a town, take out an ad in the newspaper, which just kind of blows my mind, yeah. in 1906 to find ads in a paper. And she gives a lecture to maybe the church, to the full house about, about uh, black people and progress and education. And then she pulls aside a group of maybe 10 to 12 women in the church basement and she demonstrates her products. And she had a great knack for identifying talent and leadership. She'd say, who was the woman who other people ask questions of? Who had some charisma? Who um, seemed to ask, you know, who seemed, who did others gravitate towards? And that's who she would make her lead agent and then she'd move on to the next town. So that was her model of recruitment. Um, you write at one point, she's making over $10,000 a year, which is, uh, apparently, I didn't do the math, but I, I'm sure your number is right. 800 grand today. Uh, that's big money. Um, does she start to um, realize that she has, she is hitting it big? I mean, do, does it start to be like, whoa, like I've got an empire under me? What is she kind of going through? You know, what's going through her head as this business is growing and growing? She really does have this sense of empowerment. She knows that she's making a difference and she can see it in the women, how her crowds are getting bigger. And by the time she and her husband, CJ, moved to Indianapolis, 
she has used some of those connections with the fraternal organizations and with the AME church to start to have some leadership roles. And she knows she has excess money. She always, she says, I gained, you know, I benefited from other people helping me. It is my obligation. It's my privilege to, to help others. And so as she began to make money, she saw opportunities to give back. And some of those opportunities became very high profile incidents for her where that catapulted her to the next level. One being this gift to the um, YMCA, the Black YMCA in Indianapolis. She also starts to run in very, very well-known uh, circles of very well-known people, uh, Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, W.E.B. Uh, e. Dubois. Um, there are so many um, names that she's kind of involved in, but but she never sort of loses sight of the political moment that she's living through either. And she protests lynching. And as you just mentioned, the YMCA in Indianapolis, I mean, she takes on a number of causes. So what is in her and in her background that makes her realize that um, this world is not just about the money that I can pile up? Yeah, because it really could have been just, she could have just been about the money. And she said in a speech, I love cars and nice houses and fur coats, Who does? but I love to use a part of what I make to help others. And I think because she had been the recipient of so much kindness and generosity from others, she really saw this as an opportunity to, to give back. And the spectrum of friendships, it really, it ranged across the black political spectrum because Black people, as we know, are not monolithic. So Booker T. Washington was more conservative, but very powerful. W.E.B. Du Bois was more uh, progressive, more radical. Ida B. Wells, her good friend, was a major suffragist and an anti-lynching advocate. Mary McLeod Bethune. So she was able to have friendships across the spectrum. And she knew that her own story coming from cotton plantation not being formally educated but being able to employ other women was powerful in motivating other people talk about how she goes and protests lynching i thought that was the most striking moment this is at a moment in, in america where the clan is beginning to rise again uh you know there have been several iterations of course of it um and lynching is a cause that she takes on um very much um head on and it just struck me that she was born at a time where there were so many lynchings happening, political lynchings in the South. And here she is as a grown, accomplished woman going out and taking on the second strand and the second wave of lynchings. Well, you know, these, this is one of those uh, questions where I just wish I could sit down with her and say, what was it that made this such an important cause for you? And as a biographer, you try to stitch things together. And so in my mind, I imagine that some of the things she observed as a child with her family minister, with her brothers in that community, planted some of those seeds that she had seen things that made her particularly attuned to this. But it really was the Black Lives Matter issue of the times. And as she began to make more money, in many ways, she became much more politically active. Part of the reason she moved from Indianapolis, where her company was based, to Harlem is that she wanted to be in the thick of things with the NAACP 
and with the more political um, organizations. So she saw the harm that it was doing to the community and was very close to Ida B. Wells Barnett, Mary Burnett Talbert, who were two women in leadership roles in the NAACP and the women's movement. And she knew they needed her um, support. And she began to write checks to the anti-lynching movement, the largest gift that she gave, um, $5,000 she pledged to the NAACP's anti-lynching campaign uh, shortly before she died. But the other thing that I think is really critical for this, she had lived in St. Louis from late 1880s to 1905. In 1917, the summer of 1917, there was a horrible riot in East St. Louis where more than three dozen African-Americans were killed, just attacked and killed. And she knew that community. And that became a galvanizing moment for African-Americans. I would say as nationally known as the George Floyd murder. And there was a big uh, march in New York, uh, 10,000 African-Americans marched up Fifth Avenue with signs and protests, the silent protest parade. And she had been one of the organizers on the executive committee for the NAACP. So she did, as you say, she seized the moment. She was fully aware of the power of a moment like that to be able to galvanize people around a cause. There are two more business questions I want to ask. One of my favorite writers um, says, a genius is someone who sees something that no one else does. Aside from the product, what did she see about business that no one else did? You know, I love you asking that question because sometimes people say, well, you know, how did she do this? And I, and I really do sometimes just default to she was a genius. Okay. So that, <laughs> I'm asking you oh, to go one step further. One step right. further. <laughs> <laughs> because there's certain things you're like, how in the world did this person who had been uneducated on a plantation, who had been abused, you know, all of those things, how in the world did she get past that? And so there has to be the seed of genius. But what she saw was her own personal self, personal transformation, her self-transformation. And it was something as simple as her hair. And she felt better about herself because her hair grew back and she didn't feel ashamed of the way she looked. But she then translated that into what could happen for other women and what that might do for other women. And she saw, yes, there's a hair care product that I have and, and it actually works and she showed her before and after pictures, but she could tell in the way that the lives of her agents were transformed, that there was a power there. And it was the power that she had seen with the women organizing with the National Association of Colored Women. These women want a hair care product, they want to look great, but they need education and they need economic empowerment and financial literacy because they otherwise the only jobs they can get are sharecroppers and maids and laundresses. So it wasn't about just selling your hair will look good for a minute or two or for however long, a week or a month. This was about instilling a lifelong feeling of worth that she was selling. Absolutely. I mean, she, when she took out some of her earliest ads do have this before and after picture with the center picture, her hair is very short. And then on either side, you see this sort of full bushy mane of hair. But in the, the text of the ad, there are testimonial letters that are not unlike a Jenny Craig commercial 
and this is 1910. But there were letters both from women who used her product and who sold her product. So a woman who used her product wrote to her and she said, before I started using Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long. And now it's down my back and I've been able to throw my wig away. But just as important were the letters from her sales agents. And one woman wrote to her and said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. How did that her, was the power. How did her business methods influence the rest of the cosmetic industry that we still see today? I guess you got a little bit uh, towards it with a Jenny Craig there, but uh, but t- tell us about how the rest of the cosmetic industry was was sort of built on what she created and, and her ideas. So yeah, two years before Mary Kay was born, <laughs> Madam Walker had her first convention of her sales agents. And she really was creating a community, an army of women who were leaders. And I, some, you know, some leadership um, coaches would still use this same idea of empowering your people in providing benefits for them and making them feel that they're a part of a community and encouraging leadership. And I think that leadership uh, and activism is what certainly lived in the legacy of Madam Walker. When she had this convention in 1917, she infused it not just with be, you know, sell a lot of products. She gave prizes to the women who sold the most products, but also to the women who contributed the most to charity. So she's social responsibility, uh, capitalism (laughs) during that period of time. And those seeds that were planted with the women being politically active, they sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson at the end of the convention to ask him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. One of my good friends, Tiffany Gill, who's a professor at Rutgers, has done a lot of research on women in the civil rights movement. And she carries that thread of political activism among beauticians up through the civil rights movement and says the beauticians um, helped to pay for the buses that took people to the March on Washington in 1963. Now that is fascinating. That's, that's good stuff right there. Um, she dies at 51. Uh, you speculate in the book, there might've been some hypertension, I guess, uh, hard to know, but um, she leaves behind not only all the things we've been talking about, but a giant mansion in Westchester uh, near John D. Rockefeller. Um, so what was it like for you to, I guess, I assume, walk that property and see it and you know, take in this lasting physical structure that had been left behind? So I'm really glad that it's still standing. It's a National Historic Landmark and a National Trust for Historic Preservation um, National Treasure. So it is wonderful that it's there. But it was not in my family when I was growing up. The first time I visited, I happened to have been at a conference at the Terrytown Conference Center and just walked up and knocked on the door. A couple of friends walked over there with me. And it was still at that point owned by the Companions of the Forest, a women's benevolent organization. It was kind of a retirement home. And then later it was sold to a man named Ingo Appel and then to Harold Doley, an African-American investment banker. And it's now owned by a, a, a foundation that was created by Richelieu Dennis and his family. Rich was the founding CEO of Sundial Brands, the company that actually makes an MCJW Madam Walker line. But Rich is uh, sold the, the company to Unilever and uh, the found, his foundation purchased the house. And it's now 
being um, spruced up to become a gathering place for women of color entrepreneurs who are part of a, an investment fund called New Voices Fund that he created. That's got to be uh, moving for you and important for you to see that kept alive. It's a magical house. Uh, the The first time it really came back alive was when the Dolies moved in and they had a big concert with the West uh, Westchester Philharmonic and the you know I could the food was going through the house and the music was playing and I thought this is what it was meant to be. This is what Madam Walker had really intended for it to be a gathering place and a center of culture and politics. Uh, you can listen to the story, you can read the story, and you can also watch the story. Uh, tell us how the Netflix series came about. Sure. So Self Made, uh, starring Octavia Spencer, is inspired by <laughs> my nonfiction book, but it is very much a work of fiction. It's very Hollywood. And of course, Octavia Spencer is fabulous, and she really brings Madam Walker to life. But my book was optioned, and it's the the Hollywood story of how that that happens. And then, you know, the writer often is kind of, you know, thrown out the window. <laughs> See ya. Thanks. Tell yeah. a story. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so um, that happened, but it does mean, um, you know, I, I, as I say, Octavia was great. And I'm really glad that more people know Madam Walker's name and uh, some of them are reading the book now. <laughs> is there someone today who's carrying on the legacy, um, even if they don't realize that they are? There are dozens of people. It really is amazing to me. The explosion of cosmetics and uh, hair care products by women of color and by women in general, but especially by women of color, many of them being supported by the New Voices Fund founded by Richelieu Dennis. So that's full circle for me. But there are so many people who are successful in this space who have told me or who've done interviews and they say they are inspired by Madam Walker's example. So it is happening and it's not just in the beauty space. There are women who are CEOs of corporations or who have started their own businesses in all kinds of other uh, arenas. So I, I'm really pleased that, that Madam Walker is, uh, is an inspiration for lots and lots of people. You mentioned your mother and the influence that she had on you. What, uh, how did what you heard as a child match the reality once you did the research? You know, these stories, I knew the story that was, the story that Madam Walker told in the company biography, you know, born in Delta, Louisiana, orphaned at seven, married at 14, a washerwoman to shoes 38, a millionaire when she died at 51 in 1919. That was really the basic story. And I knew that my mother went to work every day and worked hard and you know, was very involved in community activities. But the real research came about in part because my grandfather saved so many original documents and papers and photographs, and I had those, but also because a woman who had been Madam Walker's secretary, Violet Reynolds, had gone to work as a teenager in 1914, had marshaled more than 40,000 documents, historical records, and those things were sitting in the Madam Walker, what's now the Madam Walker Legacy Center in Indianapolis, just the buildings almost crumbling around her at that point. And those papers we donated to the Indiana Historical Society. So that became the basis for my research. And now those have been digitized and 
are part of a really major exhibit on Madam Walker. But it's the combination of, I heard some family stories, but we didn't really sit around the table talking about Madam Walker. But there were things that my grandfather had saved and then this incredible body of records that uh, the Walker Company was able to keep. Is it easier or more difficult for Black women in America today to start their own business and become millionaires? Well, it's probably easier (laughs) now than it was for Madam Walker. But I think anybody who looks at that venture capital space knows that women get less than 2% of venture capital funds. So it is challenging for women to be heard and to be taken seriously and to get the needed capital. And I think especially right now when we're seeing with, uh, with the pandemic, people who were kind of on an upward trajectory with their businesses have, are facing a lot of roadblocks and things have been stymied, but there are other people who are figuring out ways to take advantage of this moment and um, capitalize on it and, and do a good service. So, I mean, I think it's, it's just more difficult for women to, to get that money that helps them move up to the next level, that helps them scale up. Uh, we should say that my dad has done a project with Alelia also uh, when it comes to Woodlawn Cemetery, which is where Alelia, uh, which is where Madam C.J. Walker is buried and Alelia has been there. Um, uh, and so I just want to ask, when you go to the gravesite, what do you say to her? You know, I, I just, re- I really smile because she's given me such a gift. Um, you know, I will have to say that while Madam Walker was a millionaire, I did not inherit millions <laughs> and I did not have a trust fund, but I have inherited an amazing story and the opportunity to inspire others and to encourage others to uh, reach for their goals. It, it, that, and that is a great gift. Alelia Bundles, author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Certainly check out that book and also Alelia's Twitter page at Alelia Bundles and also her website, aleliabundles.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.